0: So um, if you're a regular uh member of this church or part of this church, you know that over the last few months we have been going through uh the gospel of Mark, and we've done that Sunday after Sunday. But today, as I said, we are going to be going through something a little bit different. We're going to do a standalone message that will deal with an important subject that we need to address especially in the life of the church, we are going to look at the subject of believer's baptism. And it's probably a little overdue from the pastoral perspective, but we normally do these sermons uh, when we are ready to have a baptism. And it's been a little bit of uh, time since that's happened. So it's a blessing to be able to uh, do this again this morning. So today we're going to Uh, go back to some of the very fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian and what we celebrate in baptism. And what we celebrate is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me. And that Christ came and lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father, knowing full well that he as he lived this life on earth some 2,000 years ago, that he was destined for the cross. That's the reason he came. He was born in order to die as the only way that a sinner can be reconciled to God. Christ died as a substitutionary payment for your sins. He offered his innocent life for your guilty life. God took his innocent life and punished it as though he had committed the sins that you and I committed. And Jesus suffered, bled, and died in our place so that we might be called to salvation. That whoever believe in Christ for salvation would find full and complete unconditional forgiveness of their sins and the promise of eternal life, that there would no longer be any fear in death. In true salvation, that death has no sting because Christ rendered it. Uh, fearless on our behalf because he was buried, because he was raised on the third day, and because he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we know that one day he will return to receive his people and to judge a sinful world. Those are the basics of the gospel. And that's why this church exists. Because those simple facts are the basis upon what redemption relies upon. And that's what we celebrate when we practice the ordinance of baptism. Now I realize that there are some people that come to this church who have had a long history of good biblical instruction and you understand baptism and I am grateful for that. But I also realize that there are new people who come who haven't been taught the scriptures. And may be confused about the ideas and the conflicting instructions about baptism and need to come to a better understanding of the, the ordinance of baptism. And hopefully this morning, we will be able to answer some of those basic questions so that there can be a f- common foundation that informs our practice of baptism going forward into the future. But as we do this, one of the things that we should keep asking ourselves is, do the marks of true conversion manifest themselves in my life? Because here's one of the risks of baptism. One of the things that's quite possible, in fact, it's quite common for people to grow up in a Christian church, be baptized either as an infant or at a very young age before they really know or understand what they're doing. And then they just operate on the assumption that, well, water was applied to my body, therefore I'm free to do whatever I want. I can live however I want. Now I'm a Christian. I've been baptized, therefore eternal life is mine. If you're here this morning and you think that way, you don't understand what it means to be a Christian, let alone to be baptized. So we need to start from the beginning, and we need not to make assumptions. Now, among people who believe the one true gospel, among the churches that preach the one true gospel, there are two positions concerning baptism. And the the main differences between the two positions is a difference over the significance of water baptism, and that different difference leads us to a different question of water baptism, and that is who in the church should be baptized with water. Now the Credo Baptist or Believers Baptism position is. Uh, That the significance of water baptism is a testimony to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That word credo is actually where we get the word creed from. The word creed means I believe. If you notice, most of the creeds start with that. I believe in one God. I believe. And so what we're saying is baptism with water is a testimony to the fact that an individual has already received spiritual baptism. The individual already believes on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from sin. And now, God the Father, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within that individual and th- and therefore, that saved person is qualified to be baptized with water as a public testimony of that fact. This is the position that this church holds to. The other position is paedobaptism or infant baptism, the position that the water of baptism is the new co- in the new covenant is a direct replacement of physical circumcision of the old covenant. And this position says that the water baptism, therefore, signifies membership into the, a visible church, a membership into a visible body. And so the paedobaptist baptist view is that water baptism is administered to both adults, uh, believers, and their infant children because they say that the parent's position as a believer confers a special new covenant status upon the child. Well, clearly, the credo-baptist and the paedo-baptist positions cannot both be correct. And so we need to answer the question, who is qualified to receive water baptism according to Scripture and why? And of course, answering that question involves answering a related question, what is the significance of water baptism under the New Covenant? And so, let's, let's go ahead and dig into this and see if we can legitimately, and even more importantly, biblically answer these questions. And to do so, I want to start uh, with a text found in Acts chapter 2, beginning with uh, verse 38. Verse 38. And we'll go all the way through uh, Peter's closing words of the great sermon at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So if you would please turn to Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 38, and we'll read all the way through verse 41. Starting with verse 38 Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call and with Many words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, I would like us to look at what is used as one of the proof texts for infant or pedo baptism it's found in Colossians chapter 2. So if you would please turn to Colossians chapter 2 and we'll look at verses 8 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 8. Beware, lest any cheat, anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, as we approach these two passages we must keep in mind some important principles that must govern how we interpret the the Bible and one of the most important principles is that we must remember that God's Word gives us progressive revelation God's plan of redemption from the Old Testament to the New Testament later passages in the Bible give us fuller revelation on a particular subject than earlier passages. As a matter of fact, Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And so we must look at all of what Scripture says on the subject of baptism, and we must look at it with a progressive nature of God's revelation, and, and it needs to be clear in our minds. And when I say progressive, that is not a great word nowadays. And I don't mean to constantly change. I mean to look at it from the Old Testament and progress to the New Testament. And we have more than the Old Testament, obviously. God has given us the New Testament. And that is a 27-volume commentary on the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament explains the Old Testament in light of this fuller revelation, and it tells us about the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, which has superseded the old covenant and made the old covenant obsolete. The new covenant takes precedence over the old. The later revelation that we find in the New Testament is fuller and clearer than the revelation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament revelation was often given in terms of types and shadows. And we see this all through Scripture. There's types and shadows. Um, you can even think of where Noah gets on the ark. With uh, There's eight total. The ark is a type or shadow of Christ himself. Those who are in the ark are saved. Those who are not in the ark are not. That's just one of the examples that we would see in the Old Testament is a type or shadow. And so we need to approach the, the Bible in this way. We need to read, read the Old Testament in light of the New. And we must make sure that we don't reimpose those things in the Old Testament on the New Testament church. Because that would be a form of legalism. Legalism has no place in salvation. Legalism denies the preeminence of Christ in our salvation. Legalism denies that Christ, Jesus, paid it all. So we must never read the New Testament through the Old Testament lens. We need to read the Old Testament through the New Testament lens. Now these imperatives are not man-made principles and priorities. They are derived from Scripture itself. And so uh, this is a way in which we have taken up the question. On the authority of Scripture alone, who is qualified to be baptized with water and why? Well, here's what we find out in Scripture. The condition for water baptism, the condition for a covenant relationship with God is not family relationship but salvation. The condition for water baptism is not a matter of who your earthly parents are. The condition of water baptism in the New Testament is who your heavenly Father is. The condition for water baptism is is how a person can answer this question. How have you been reconciled? To God through personal repentance from sin and personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter told the Jews on the day of Pentecost that the promise of God for this New Testament age, this new covenant age, is the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit who indwells every person who is in Christ. Individual salvation which is signified by baptism of the Holy Spirit, is the issue. In other words, those who are qualified for water baptism at the hand of man are those who have received spirit baptism by the hand of God. This is the qualification for water baptism, not human parentage. In Galatians chapter 3, we see that, The promised gift of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant is the promised seed of Abraham. So if you would please turn to Galatians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Paul doesn't mix any words here either. Oh foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having Begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who, ha- who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foresees that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preached preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Here we see the promised seed consists of those who are in Christ, believers in Christ, those who have in the eyes of God the Father an intimate identification with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That we read in Colossians chapter two and elsewhere. And now, how can the paedobaptist or the infant baptist say that water baptism is the new covenant replacement for Old Testament circumcision? Well, the paedobaptist position believes that Colossians chapter two eleven through twelve teaches that. Now, I'll tell you right away that we're going to find that this interpretation of Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12 is not correct, and I will explain why that is the case. I do want to make a point here, though, and this is what I love about the relationship between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. This is not a salvific issue. R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur saw themselves as joint soldiers in the Church of Jesus Christ. They did not make this an issue among them. So I want that to be an overriding idea as we're going through this. Now, paedobaptist baptist theologians speak of both Old Covenant circumcision and New Covenant baptism as the sign and seal of the covenant. They often recite Romans four, eleven and twelve as a proof text, and this is what we read there actually, why don't you go ahead and turn there? I know I'm having you turn a lot of places, Romans chapter four and verses eleven and twelve. here it says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they were uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had had while still uncircumcised. Now, it says that Abraham received the seal, which in the Greek uh, is the Greek word uh, sphragis. (laughs) It's a, yeah. We're not normally putting those kind of syllables together. Um, But it means uh, the mark or token of circumcision a seal which uh, in the original Greek means confirmation or authentication of righteous uh, faith, which he had not yet been circumcised. And so it's true that Genesis seventeen eleven we find that the circumcision is called a sign, and there the, the word is simaion, which is a sign of God's covenant with Abraham, but circumcision is never called the seal of that covenant. It is a sign and seal of faith. the The verse I read in Romans four is the only place in Scripture that uses this term "seal" in revelation in relationship to circumcision. Um, but. It says that circumcision is a seal of righteousness of faith, which Abraham had while yet being uncircumcised. In other words, circumcision is not a seal of physical membership in the covenant. Uh, It was a seal of the confirmation or authentication of Abraham's personal saving faith. Furthermore, we need to read uh, Romans uh, 4.11 in context. We need to read uh, verse twelve, where Paul says circumcision was a seal of Abraham's uh, faith, in order that he might be the father of those who believe, through though they were uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the the father of circumcision to those who had not, uh, who who not only are the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, as we read, or we read in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, uh, we find that it is believers who are the true seed of Abraham. It says that not all Israel is Israel, meaning all of those who were of the circumcision weren't really the true Israel. It was a sign of the seal. It was a seal of the righteousness that God imputed to Abraham by faith. And scripture never calls baptism, the New Testament baptism, a, a seal of the covenant. The seal of the covenant is actually the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit and that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. We find that confirmation in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 as well. So if you would please turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14. I know I'm having you turn a lot, and we did that last week as well. But I think it's important that you actually see these things these things, instead of just hearing and not being able to see it written down. And, and also, one of the reasons that I like to turn is so that you can see it in context. I know that many people will sit there and they will pull verse out, and then when you read that, that whole chapter or even the, a couple paragraphs, you go, yeah, that wasn't really what it was saying. And this gives you the ability to see it in context. And so ch- starting with verse 13, Here in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, let me also remind you of something that's very important that's found in Colossians chapter 2. Keep in mind that the Colossian believers were primarily Gentiles. They were physically uncircumcised. And Paul declares to these people that they are complete in Christ. You are fully furnished in every way, he tells them. You lack nothing that is necessary for salvation or sanctification, You do not need to be physically circumcised as the Judaizers would have required. Paul says, because believers in Christ are under the new covenant, listen to this, they have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, which is the circumcision of Christ. Now with all of that, all that talk about circumcision, You might wonder, okay, okay, how does this all uh, tie in to the circumcision of Christ? Well, we're going to go back here. Remember in the garden, who was it that sinned first? It was Eve. Eve committed sin first. But you see, sin didn't enter through Eve. It entered through Adam 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. First Corinthians eleven three says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 15:21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And then verse 45 there says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, sin entered through Adam. And in Adam, we get our sin nature. Now, original sin does not mean that we take on the sins of Adam. It means that we take on the nature of Adam. We have a sin nature, and that sin nature is passed on from generation to generation. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Now, the woman conceives and carries a child, but it is the seed of the man that bears the sin nature. And so God gave Abraham the promise that there would be one who would come and break that sin nature, who would change the the nature within a believer. It all has to do with federal headship. We were all born under the federal headship of Adam. Those who are born again in Christ now have a new federal head in Christ the sign of the new federal headship would come through the line of Abraham, which was circumcision. So from male to male, generation to generation, it was through circumcision that we have this promise, this hope of a new federal head. And that's what makes the virgin birth of Christ so important. You see, Christ didn't receive that sin nature through Adam. Why? Because he didn't have a human father. He didn't get the seed of the sin nature from a human. So therefore, he could stand and would stand sinless. And so now in the new covenant, Christians have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Which is the circumcision of Christ. You see, no longer is it generation to generation, male to male. Now it is a new birth in Christ through regeneration, a circumcision made without hands. And the, the reform, the reformation, that was a wonderful time and there were some really dramatic changes that took place during that time and some really you know solid christian doctrine was among those churches those reformed churches but they they didn't see baptism for what it was they didn't see baptism was only a picture of god's salvation It was something to be done out of obedience. And so there was in the Reformation a belief that baptism didn't save. They didn't believe, the Reformers didn't believe that. They understood that it was a picture of salvation. But you see, they didn't go far enough. They didn't jettison what they had believed when they belonged to the Catholic Church although they no longer believed the doctrine that there was baptismal regeneration, that sin actually in baptism was removed, they didn't go far enough, and they continued to baptize the children of believers. And we know from the Word of God that all the children of Abraham, all the sons of Abraham, were circumcised in the Old Testament. The New Testament, we find that it is ex, it is exactly the same, though, that those who are true, de, <clears throat> excuse me, true descendants of Abraham are those who are to be baptized. Problem is, as we look at this, we need to find out what is the difference. We need to find out that it's... A person could be a Jew outwardly, but not a Jew inwardly. That although they bear the marks of Abraham, they don't have the faith of Abraham. And so true circumcision is of the heart. The one who is truly a child of Abraham. And so what does that mean? It basically means that children of believers are not necessarily the true children of of Abraham. And therefore, they are not to be baptized until they can express, or if, they can express faith faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would please turn to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Starting with verse 26, now listen to this. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, it's those who have trusted in Christ, who belong to Christ, are the true children of Abraham and the ones who should be baptized. Now it sounds really confusing But really think of this. God doesn't have any grandchildren. In other words, just because I believe does not necessarily mean that my children will believe. My children need to believe, and they are children, not grandchildren. It's not passed on through my lineage. It is through Christ and Christ alone. And thank God that many children... Do come to faith and we are thankful for that but that's not guaranteed and so the sign that indicates that a person is saved the sign of baptism should not be given to a child until that child can come to true faith in Christ and if we look at the word for baptism in the New Testament we'll also see that baptism is not just a sprinkling or a dipping it is the word "baptizo," and it literally means to immerse, to submerge, to overwhelm, and to uh, and that's the way it's used in the New Testament. The word has the idea of taking cloth and dipping it in to dye, to to immerse it into to dye to where it takes on the new color. So that it it changes what it was. It, it's it's showing that there's this change take that has taken place. And so eventually, when you take this cloth out of the dye, you can see that it's it's a different color. And so if you just mean that it's it's the sprinkle and stuff, and you know you just dip them in or you it, it's not indicating that same uh, picture. We need to see the picture that is clear in Scripture, and so if you would please uh, turn to Matthew 28, and this is actually our purpose statement for the church, um, Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. And I'm going. I'm, the reason I'm having you turn here is so that I'm going to pull it apart a little bit, exegete it some. And so I want you to see this. And here in verse 18 it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen now if you notice something about this it says that you are to go and make disciples of all nations comma baptizing them so in other words part of making disciples is baptizing it's, it says nothing about taking the child or a little baby and baptizing there's nothing other than the thought that when a person becomes a disciple When a person becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that person is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say, teaching them to observe. How can you teach a small child uh, that has no idea? This is where you, you understand you have faith, and now it's teaching you about that faith. It's not just teaching you the things about Jesus. It's teaching you about something that you already possess, and that's faith. And so this has to be someone who at least has reached an age of awareness of what's going on. A person who has gotten to the point where they can trust in the Lord, where they see their own sinfulness, and they see their need for a Savior. And so there's there's a lot of passages that we could look at uh, for this. But you know, we we see that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, as we read, you know, Peter gives this rousing sermon. I'm gonna do something that I normally don't do. I'm gonna have you turn back there to Acts chapter 2. But this time I'm going to start in verse 37. And I, I left that out purposely because I want to I wanted to build on this so that you can see. What is actually happening here? So Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now that's a great question, right? What does Peter say as an answer? In verse 38, and this is where we read already, then Peter says to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, And for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with Many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now listen to this. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added. That is incredible. 3,000 souls were added. What a, a, a great day. Now it's it's very possible that there were children and babies there mothers holding their children but they aren't mentioned it says nothing about baptizing any of those other than those who had heard and believed and before we baptize someone the elders sit down and and ask for the testimony of how how do you know tell us how you have been born again in Christ, how you have been regenerated, made alive in Christ. We want to hear that you have trusted in the Lord. And even in that, that's not a stamp. The stamp comes from God, not us. And so we want to hear this clear testimony of faith. And we want to see this picture, the picture of an individual who should be baptized Those who believe. Well, the next thing we need to consider, and I've touched on this, is the motive of baptism. And like I said, some just baptize uh, with a sprinkling. But I want to go to a passage that I'm going to use actually during the service when we move outside. And it's Acts chapter 8. And I'll, I'll read this again. Just before the baptism takes place. So if you turn to Acts chapter 8 and verses 26 through 40. And for you, those of you who are, I don't normally have you turn this often. I do have you turn, but not this often. I just want to really show this. Now, starting with verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert. Now remember that part. This is a desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, and this is really important, how can I unless someone guides me? You know, that's teaching and sound doctrine. That is taking and, and drawing out of the word. Not That's called exegesis. It's not uh, adding to, not reading something and then just talk about your dog or something else that happened and try to tie it in. That's eisegesis. This is exegeting, how someone comes alongside you and say, you know this? Let me tell you, based on all of Scripture and all of doctrine, what this actually means. And when he asked Philip to come up and sit with him, the place in the Scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. <clears throat> the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, At this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip And the eunuch went down into the water, and he was baptized. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now think about that for a moment. If it was just pouring water on someone, you don't think that he had a a cool drink or something in the chariot that he could have used that water to pour on him? It says that he came to the body of water. And when he had come to this body of water, he says, what hinders me from being baptized? Obviously, he understood that he could only uh, take this could only take place in a body of water where a person could be immersed in the water. And Philip, if you notice, he, he tells what the correct candidate for baptism is. Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And so what is the criteria for baptism? To believe with all your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the one and only Savior, that he is the only hope that you have for eternal life. And apart from him, you have nothing. You must have faith before baptism. And so the eunuch says, I believe that Jesus is the Son. And so he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, they walked into the water, which was obviously deep enough for them to wade in. And he baptized him. And if you notice what it says in the next uh, verse, when he came out of the water, the spirit snatched Philip away. What a beautiful picture. Who is entitled to baptism? The person who is a believer. How is it to be done? Immersion in, <clears throat> excuse me, immersion in water. And as we read through the New Testament, we find more and more and more. I think one of the most important uh, scriptures that we could turn on this is Romans chapter 6. If you would please turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. starting with verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this: that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we no longer uh, should no longer be slaves of sin. This is a perfect picture. When a person is baptized, it shows that we are going into the grave and that we are being raised new in Christ. That we are dying to ourselves and risen in Christ. That is a beautiful picture of salvation. That Christ died on the cross of Calvary, that he was buried in the tomb. And three days later he rose from the dead and he was seen by multitudes and taken into heaven. We have that concept of baptism and what it pictures here. So those who who are being baptized, they go under the water and it's a picture of Christ's death and dying in Christ. And then it's coming out of the grave as it says, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You know, knowing that our old self has been crucified, knowing that in order that our body of sin might be done away with, and that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We want to make that public profession. We want to come and say, I want you to know. I think it's it's funny where Augustine, he was walking down the street, and he was a womanizer. He was a terrible man. And then he was he was saved. He was actually saved when he heard a, a child's song, Tole lege, means pick up and read. And when he looked, he saw a scripture and he read it and he was converted that moment. But he wasn't who he used to be. He was walking down the street some years after, after he was saved. And from the balcony, a woman had called to him and said, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. He looked back up and he said, yes, but it is not I. It shows that he had new life in Christ. He was not the man that he once was. That he was no longer a slave to sin. That the Spirit of God now dwelt within him. And so, because of that, we serve him day by day to glorify him And what we do to live the newness of life and so here in providence bible church we believe that the lord has given us two ordinances the ordinance of baptism which is actually a picture of our entrance into salvation then we have the ordinance of communion or the lord's supper which is a picture of our relationship with god the one we do once, the other we do over and over and over because that relationship is ongoing. And so as we, we ponder these things, we pray that God will sanctify us, that he will take away more and more of our sinful behavior so that we can live a glorifying life to him. But we have to remember we only have two ordinances and neither one of them has to do with actually taking sin away. Neither one is salvific. They are pictures of what God has done to us. And so we go forth and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your abundant love that you have showered upon us in Christ. We thank you for these pictures that you have given us to picture the work of Christ as he died and rose again. What a blessing it is to know that we have a God who loves us with an everlasting love, a God who desires nothing more for us than, than that we might honor him with our lives, that we might be blessed in every way by doing this. And I just pray that if there was anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, to repent of their sin, Believe upon Christ and be baptized. We thank you for this day and for this church. And we pray this in Christ's most glorious and precious name. Amen.